Hey everyone, it's Dimpney here from I Love Real Estate. Now we're into uh, part seven of the great real estate reset of 2021. And in this session, I'm taking you right back to economics because there's two cycle drivers that I think you need to understand because when you understand what has happened historically and how markets work and what has happened in the past and things like that, I think it's it, it kind of paints a very clear picture of what's going to happen this time around, considering every single time previously, um, there's been the same result. So I want to share that with you. I want to show you what that means for you and uh, even get into uh, some of the cycles and the cycle charts and how how long it will take for actually all of the fundamentals, all the underlying fundamentals that we covered off earlier in the, uh, in the series to actually work their way through the economy to a point where we will then get to an oversupply. And of course, when we're in oversupply, that can't last for very long, the market will correct. So I wanna talk about that as to when the market's going to correct and uh, you know, obviously then what it means for you. So I know you're gonna enjoy this one as well. Again, if you want to see all of my slides with all of the, the, uh, the video, etc., then you need to go to my website, uh, iloverealestate.tv, and you can actually see the whole thing there in visual. So you'll see what I'm actually talking about with the slides and the numbers and et cetera, et cetera. So all good. I will see you on the other side of the, this uh, cut across to a live event. Okay, let's get on to those two very exciting uh, two more drivers that I want to talk to you about. Now, the first thing I want to do is I want to take you back in history. And history does repeat. The best way to predict the future is actually to look at the past. So I'm going to go back and have a look at five periods of time in the past. The first one is the Spanish flu. The next one is Black Monday. Then I'm going to look at the Asian financial crisis, the tech wreck, and the GFC. Let's start with the Spanish flu. Why was it called the Spanish flu? Well, it was called the Spanish flu because it came about at the end of World War I. And uh, Spain was actually like Switzerland in World War II. They didn't get involved in the war. So everybody in Spain was talking about the Spanish flu and reporting on the Spanish flu, whereas everybody else was uh, talking about the war. This was a, a newspaper clipping of the day, um, and it talks about how to wash your hands and soap and germs and all the rest of it. It was very, very similar. But back then, the Spanish flu, it started in 1918, came to Australia with the return of the soldiers and the nurses, etc., quickly spread around Australia. The death toll internationally was somewhere between 50 to 100 million people. The media went crazy fear and hysteria. People were grabbing everything off the shelves, including toilet paper. Um, you know, the, they, the, they closed everything down, just like they have this time around. They closed schools, they closed churches, theatres, restaurants, hotels, even, even uh, sporting events that they were all shut down. The Spanish, sorry, the, the um, Sydney Royal Easter Show was shut down. Even the Royal the, the victory um, celebrations of the war were, were stopped or postponed. They wore face masks. Look at the garb. Look at the garb that they get that, that, um, you know, dressed up in. And the face masks are the same. That's a picture from the day. And you look at the, you know, there was a great economic hardship. 40% of Australian population caught the flu. 15,000 Australians died from the Spanish flu. The death toll equated to 0.29% of the Australian population at the time. 
um, and which was much lower than the rest of the world. But you know what? By the time the dust settled, the property market had already started to increase. By uh, 1919, they were already in double digit growths in the property market. There were border closures. This was one of the border closures. Look at them all queuing up to try and get across the border. It's a bit different to today, but same, same concept. During 1919, Australian population grew by 100,000 people, despite the fact that the flu had killed 15,000, 1.9% of the population increase back in 1919. Very, very similar to what we have today. And the, the, currently, we're running at about 1.6, uh, or we were prior to the flu. But the fact is, you know, that migration, it will come back. It will continue on. And in 1919, investors abandoned savings and shares and they all flocked to the property market. And that's exactly what we're seeing that, that happening as we play out right now. So the Spanish flu was 100 years ago. It was a flu. In fact, it was the N1H1 virus, just like we've got now, the coronavirus. A little bit different, a little bit, bit of, you know, add-ons to it, but that's basically it. We didn't have a vaccine back then. Um, you know, what, what's, why would this one here be any different? It won't be. It'll be exactly the same. And the roaring 20s followed the Spanish flu. Let's go to Black Monday. Black Monday, I was actually financial control of a stockbroking firm at the time. In 19, uh, 1987, it was, it was actually in September of 1987, Black Monday, the stock market crashed by about 23%. And this was really due to the overheating of the 80s. And, you know, basically you could raise money on anything in the stock market back then, and it oversupplied the market. It wasn't based on fundamentals anymore. I remember at the time there were stockbrokers jumping out of 10-storey buildings because they thought it was the, the worst thing on earth. Well, of course it wasn't. And in Black Monday, yeah, the, the, the stock market fell. But by October of 1988, so just, you know, a year later, residential property values had experienced double-digit growth. In the 12 months to January 88, the unemployment rate had already gone down by 60 basis points. And this is a great chart because it actually shows on the left-hand side there, it shows you the, um, the value of stocks. Now, obviously, it's the stock market crash, so the stock market's fell. That's the orange line. But the blue line is the, uh, is the property market. And it went up considerably, as you can see. Look, at the, look how the blue line came up there. On the right-hand side, this is the sales volume. So this is how much was actually being transacted. You can see here, again, property, mar property market really shot up there. When we go to the Asian financial crisis, this was in the late 90s um, and it affected mainly these countries because they were borrowing heavily from overseas in foreign currencies, mainly US and US currency, and uh, they weren't hedging their loans. So what happened was their currencies fell in value, which meant their loans doubled and even quadrupled in some circumstances. So this was a, this was a currency crash, but again, even though there was a massive currency crash and a lot of these countries nearly went broke, what happened to property? Property prices soared. So too, in this case, did the share market. But it was the property prices that really took off. There was a definite run towards property. 
Then we have the tech wreck. Now, the tech wreck was the early, uh, early 2000s. In fact, the NASDAQ, who, which is the, um, the index for technology stocks, in the late 90s, between 1995 and 2000, it went up fivefold, from about 1,000 to about 5,000 points on the NASDAQ. In 2001 through 2002, the bubble burst with equities entering a bear market. So everything started to go down again. The crash saw the NASDAQ, which had risen fivefold between 1995 and the year 2000, tumble from 5,048 in March 2000 to 1,139 by October of 2002. That's a 76.8% fall in a very short space of time. By the end of 2001, most of the dot-com stocks had already gone bust. But look what happened to property. Again, the blue line, you can see there how much that increased through that space of time. And you've got the sales volume there, which, uh, which went up substantially. You know, we've got volume going through, but we've also got sale pricing going through. Then we have the global financial crisis, the GFC. And the Federal Reserve, you know, all the countries, first of all, they dropped interest rates. That's what you can see. Interest rates fell. Great. But it wasn't enough. The, the economies were still failing. So what did they do? They then aggressively started printing money. So we had a massive market, uh, you know, printing money stage. That was our fall in, in uh, interest rates during the time. That's the Australian, Australian drop. In fact, it dropped about 4% in a matter of months. And look, it worked to a large extent. It did work. We started to have borrowings um, become easier. There was money going out in the economy. It had a few wobbles along the way. But ultimately, people put it into property. And we had a spectacular property boom, the biggest in our, probably in our recent memory. Um, but the trouble was that the general economy, the broader economy, was still struggling. Property prices were going off the, off the charts. But the broader economy struggled. And that's where the printing of money came into place. And they turned on the printing presses and in the Federal Reserve, I mean, they, look, they printed money like there was, that was going out of fashion. And that's that chart that I showed you this morning, which really reflects just how much money was, was printed. And again, it worked. It probably saved, if anything, the American economy. You know, the, the printing presses and the drop in interest rates probably saved the American economy. Unfortunately, though, the, uh, it didn't really affect that, that overall um, broader economy. So it wasn't uh, CPI that went up. It was only hard asset prices that went up. Share market, this is an American chart, shows you there the American um, increase in, the, in the, the stock market through that period of time. Now, remember, I said they're very stocks and shares um, conscious, uh, more so than we are in Australia. We are more property conscious. But real estate is a, is a hard asset as well. And that's the American chart of what happened through that period of time for, uh, you know, for, for property. But this is what happened in Australia, much more dramatic. And as I say, we are, we are very much property centric. And that chart that I showed you this morning really starts to hit home because what it shows is every time we print money, asset prices go up. Every time. You can't overlook that. This is something you cannot overlook because that's exactly what we're doing right now. So the big takeaway here is turn on the printing presses and asset prices go up. Is it fair? No, it's not. It's not fair unless you have a bucket load of properties. So right now is where you should be going, okay, we know where the market's going. What are we going to do to capitalize on this? 
And I can tell you it's all about footprint. The bigger the footprint you have in the property market, the wealthier you are going to get because all of those properties are in the upward surge. Well, actually not all. You've got to be careful about what you buy, but I'll get to that in a minute. Um, and if you're buying correctly to the Property Genius Blueprint, what you'll find is it's not only just having the growth from the market, but you will also have the cash flow. So you'll end up with positive cash flow properties that are growing and performing well for you. But not all property will respond in the same way. Not all property is going to go up in value. And this is where a lot of mistakes can be made. Not only through um, you know, actually doing a dud deal, but also through the opportunity cost of not doing a good deal, not doing a profitable deal, not doing a, a wow deal. That's the key. You know, there's a difference between commercial and residential. Now, residential, when you've got a moving market, an upward moving market, residential will always move first. Commercial will always lag. And that makes sense because it takes time for the business to regroup and to, to get back to profitability before they're in a situation where they actually afford to have uh, the, uh, the, the higher rent to pay, which is the only way, well, actually, there's rent, there's, there's higher yield on your commercial property or there's decrease in risk that will increase the value of your property. One of the two. So it takes time before a commercial tenant can afford to be paying a higher rent and therefore it will slow the growth of the commercial property. Now, can you make money in commercial property? Absolutely you can. Can you do it now? Yeah. But the operative word being you can make it. Okay. You can make the, uh, you know, the, the, the property market move, commercial or residential. But if you're looking for natural growth, the residential property will come first. Commercial will follow. But there's different types of commercial. You know, we start looking at commercial. You've got industrial. Well, industrial's hardly missed a beat through COVID because you can't exactly get your car serviced at a, you know, over the internet. It's not going to happen. They've got to have a factory. They've got to have a, a place to make those widgets, do that thing, do that whatever. You know, you can't, there's a lot of things that can't be done from your garage. So industrial has fared very, very well. Retail has always been weak. Ever since the invent of, of um uh, the uh, internet sales and things like that, uh, you're going to see, you know, you're going to see a lot of places rationalise as a result of COVID. Take Target. They closed 75 stores as a result of COVID. They blamed it on COVID. But in actual fact, it wasn't COVID at all. Um, they were going to close those stores anyway. They weren't making any money. So they used COVID as an excuse to rationalise. And a lot of big companies particularly have done that. Um, but it's more about the internet sales rather than the actual, um, you know, the, the COVID that, that's caused any of those things. But again, there's some retail you still need. You can't get your hair done over the internet. You know, you've got to go to a hairdresser. Um, and when you start looking at residential, you know, there's a lot of types of residential property that you are going to lose money on. Oh, sorry, I didn't talk about office space. Office space um, will be rationalised. There'll be a lot of smaller office space. There will be money to be made in buying large office space and then breaking it down into smaller office spaces. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a, just a rationalisation of the changing of the times. It's about being flexible, being able to, to have the plan B, the plan C, etc. But in residential, as I say, there's, there's different types of residential. And you buy, you know, your brand new house and land package, your, your apartment, you know, off the plan, et cetera. You are going to be further behind than you could have been 
had you followed the property genius blueprint. That type of stuff is will barely hold its ground. Sure, you know, as the market moves, you moves, you might get some growth in that, but it's not what you could have done. It's not going to be the stuff that'll replace your income in the next three to five years. It's not going to be the stuff that creates that empire that you can live off for the rest of your life in the next three to five years. That stuff is actually in real terms, when you take into account the opportunity cost of what else you could have done, set you back. And most people won't get that, but most people aren't educated. They don't realize what else could have been done. This is a, a, a chart actually put out by um, Michael Matusik. He's, a, he's a, a property analyst, particularly in Queensland, but all across, the, all across Australia. And the last five years have shown that the mid to high rise apartments um, have actually represented about 50% of the market. There's the traditional detached housing, which has represented about um, 30%. So this has been the supply. This is what has been coming on the market over the next few years. The missing middle is your townhouses and those sort of things, which is about 20%. That has been the supply. What it's going to show over here is what it's predicted to be in the next decade. The housing demand is going to be here in this sector. There's going to be less and less demand for your off-the-plan, you know, apartment buildings, etc. More demand for the the um, more economical, um, smaller backyards with all the toys, those sort of, you know, um, communities in this missing middle. And then the detached housing is uh, is actually going to become less because the people are looking for smaller housing. No, that's not social housing. This is the missing middle of townhouses and the like. Now you can learn from that. You can accelerate yourself from that because that's where the demand is going to be. Let's move on to number 12. Who, just before I move on to number 12, and this is, I'm gonna talk about market, uh, market, market cycles repeating themselves. Who is, who is still in a situation where you are a little bit confused as to what type of property you need to be buying? Who's confused? A few of you? Okay. There is one solution to that, and it's education and action. So everybody that answered me there, turn that around and go, my answer is education and action. Education and action. That is what will turn this around for you. The education is the starting point. If you are still a little bit unsure at the moment, it's simply because, yeah, that's right, education and action. Thank you guys for putting that up there. Education and action, education and action every single time because that's what will get you to a point where you have clarity. We've covered a lot today and, you know, a lot of the ground is, is pretty high tech. It's pretty, pretty full on. And I, I understand if you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed, but you should be excited about it. Thank you for everybody. Education and action. Woohoo! Great, great messages coming through, you know, because that's what will turn this around. If you have uncertainty, it gives you clarity. If you have fear, it gives you, it gives you certainty around, uh, you know, and, and, and self-confidence to be able to move forward. Education and action is what conquers all of those things. So thank you for putting it out there. <laughs> Jody's put it out there three times with smiley faces. 
let's look at this next one. Now, this this market cycles, I'm I'm telling you, it's going to blow the top off your head. Um, I've given you a lot of information about underlying fundamentals and why and how and charts and demand and supply curves and all of this kind of stuff. This stuff is next level. So I'm going to share with you a headline. Now, this headline was published in the Sydney Morning Herald. It says, Australian house prices are among the world's highest. Who believes that that statement is true? Give it to me in the chat room. Who says that Australian house prices, particularly if you put your Sydney hat on, is among the highest in the world? Give it to me in the chat room. A few yeses, a few noes. I've got them all over the place there, Michael. All right. Well, let me tell you that that headline was published in the Sydney Morning Herald on the 11th of January, 1992. 1992. Now, the median house price in New South Wales was $178,000. The median house price in Sydney was around about $190,000. Don't you wish you'd bought up all of Sydney at one hundred and ninety grand? You know, they're worth over a million dollars today. And this is the thing. Stop trying to, to, to jump to the next thing, the next hotspot, the whatever. We are in an upward surge. No two ways about that. You need to get smart about where to buy and what you buy. Education, action. Education, action. Because that is what will put you on this next surge. You don't want to look back in five years' time and going, oh, my God, I wish I'd bought back in 2021. You know? I, I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd done that. Because the people who are looking back, you know, and five years down the track from here going, oh, look at the prices now. I wish I'd bought then. But don't you wish your grandparents had bought up all of, the, all of the, the capital cities at these kind of prices? You would. You totally would. Now, when we start looking at markets and historical performances, we need to start looking at charts. So there's two types of economists. There's the fundamentalist who looks at all the underlying fundamentals, the microeconomic stuff and everything else. That's me. That's what I am. I'm a fundamentalist. But there's a chartist who looks at charts and says, well, this is how the chart performed last time. This is how it's going to perform this time because of market perception and all these other things come into play. So I'm going to explain to you the chartist's view of the world. Okay. Now, there's a man by the name of William Gann. Who's heard of William Gann? Died back in 1958, I think he died. Yes, lots of you. Okay. Well, William Gann, why are we still talking about it when he's dead for over 50 years, over 60 years? He came up with this thing called the Gann charts. Thank you, Julie. The Gann charts. Now, the Gann charts are a way of reading historical performances in order to predict the future. He was talking about the share market, but a lot of what he says can actually be overimposed into the property market. I'm not so keen on whatever's going on in the share market, but I'm very interested in the property market. Now, there's another guy called Fred Harrison. He uh, wrote this book here. It's called The Boom and Bust of 2010, which isn't itself particularly remarkable, other than the fact he wrote it in 2010, uh, 2005. He accurately predicted the bottoming out of the property market in the UK in 2010. Back in the, the mid-80s, when things were going crazy, crazy good, he accurately predicted the bottoming out of the property market in the early 90s. 
he got it right again, using the GAN theories. Now, within the GAN theories, when we apply it to property, there's basically an 18-year cycle. And every 18 years, the market in the UK and the US goes through this complete cycle. It's an 18-year property cycle. Now, I've tracked this back in Australia about 100 odd years. It's the same here in, in, in Australia. It's about 200 years in the other two. And there's five phases within that cycle. The first phase is the boom phase. So we've got the recovery phase, boom phase, it comes up. Then we have a slowdown, a mid-cycle slowdown. Then we have a, a, a massive boom phase that comes up after that. Uh, then we have a crash and burn because that, by that stage we've oversupplied. And then we have a leveling off and stabilization. That whole period of time takes about 18 years. It's not exact, but it's pretty bloody close, I can tell you. This is a chart of the US. You can see there how roughly every 18 years, there's been a, uh, this 18-year this cycle. If we step that forward, you can see here, again, around about an 18-year cycle, not always 100%. You can see here in the middle between uh, 1930 through to 1955, that's a 25-year cycle because that was World War I. And over here, we had World War II. World War I, World War I over there, World War II here. So the, the money that was thrown into the economy at the end of World War II artificially prolonged um, the normal cycle of this 18 years. Step that forward, and we see here 1955 through to 1977. We've got 1977 through to 1993. We've got 1993 right through to 2001. Now, this guy here is called Phil Anderson. He wrote the book there, The Secret Life of Real Estate and Banking, which is a great book. Um, very heavy, very heavy book. Uh, it talks a lot about the history of money and banking and all of those things. But he came up with this thing with, called the 18-year the property clock. He works very, very closely with Phil, with Fred Harrison, get the names mixed up, Fred Harrison. And uh, they work on the same philosophies. Phil actually did this for America and he tracked a lot of the stuff back to America. I flew to London in 2013, I think it was, to interview him because I wanted to see how this 18-year cycle applied to Australia. And the reason I want to talk to Phil is because he's actually Australian. He lived overseas all his life, well, most of his life, but he's actually Australian. So I'll talk you through this property clock. So we're going to start here at the inside of the clock. And you can see there we're ready for the next boom at one o'clock. Then we're going to go to rents go up. So yields start to increase in the market. Net rents rise because interest rates typically are low. That's three o'clock. Four o'clock, because the yields are higher in the residential property market, um, then the, uh, the, the price of existing houses start to go up because people jump into the, uh, jump into the, the property market because the yields are better. Then because the yields are better and higher prices, it's, it's, you make more money. So it's better to, um, to build. So it's more profitable to build at five o'clock. Six and seven o'clock are rapid expansion in new construction. Now just stop there for a moment. Eight and nine o'clock are easy credit and expansion in the banks. This time round, we did not have that. This time round, we did not have an eight or a nine o'clock. And the reason for that is APRA. APRA killed the economy between 2017 and mid-2019. So when we would normally have had a freeing up of the, the credit and the, the banking system as we were heading towards, um, APRA killed it. So our normal um, uh, cycle got interrupted there in the middle. But let's go back to the clock. So then we have uh, 10 o'clock is increased building activity absorbs all the vacant land. 
11 o'clock is a mid-cycle slowdown. Now, every time we have had a mid-cycle slowdown over the last 100 years in Australia, it's been caused by all sorts of different things every single time, but we've had one. That goes for a period of time, and then we jump to the outside of the clock where we've got land boom, wealth source building, complaints about property taxes, lavish government spending on public works. Remember I said about infrastructure spending earlier today? Uh, increased activity is frantic. We're at our peak. Activity slackens but confidence remains high. So this is where at 16 o'clock, we are now in oversupply. We're in oversupply. So that means the market has to crash because we're in oversupply. So then we go down to foreclosure, bankruptcy start to increase. The bear market goes to an all-time, uh, the stock market goes to an all-time bear market. Credit creation institutions go into reverse policy so no one's getting a loan. Activities goes into stall. The debts are wiped away by the banks on all the properties that they've, that they've foreclosed on. They sell them off at fire sale pricing. Wreckage is cleared away. Stock market starts climbing. And we're back into the inside of the clock again. Look, it's intriguing. If nothing else, it's intriguing. But when you track this, okay, you track this over a, a, a you know, this is another way of, of representing it. You have a period where we're in recovery. So we've got that rise. We have a mid-cycle slowdown. We have the boom phase. Now, this second boom phase here is always, in the last 100 years of history in Australia, greater than what we saw in the rise phase. Remember that. Then we have a correction period and we have a stabilization and then we're back into the, the next cycle. Our cycle here would have gone up to here before we started to come down again because that was the APRA effect of interference. So let's look at that on a different chart. So same, same concept, different chart, okay? If we say that the last peak of the previous cycle was 2008, that's when GFC hit, okay? So we, that, that was the peak of the last cycle, okay? Now, it bottomed out in 2010 and stabilised by 2012. In fact, the real chart came down and then it stabilised so that it was slightly higher already than where we were at 2008, but this is just representation, right? Now, stabilized by 2012. So that was the end of this cycle, the, the previous cycle. So our cycle that we are in now started in 2012. That was the beginning of our cycle that we are now in. But let's go back to this one. The beginning of this cycle was in 1994. The, this was that crash we all had to have with, or the recession we all had to have with Paul Keating, remember in the early 90s? It started in 1990, crashed in, 2000 and, in 1992, it crashed too, bottoming out, stabilised by 1994. So our previous cycle started in 1994. It went up to the dot-com bubble. Remember I talked about that and the NASDAQ and everything else? Crashed and burned in uh, 2000 started to turn around in 2001 through 2002. And then we had this massive increase between uh, the early 2000s up to 2008. Everybody remembers that, you know, otherwise you, you have, you've had your head in the sand. This, everybody remembers that this is fact, that's what happened. All right, that's how it actually looked in the charts. Now, I'm gonna take this same chart, but I'm gonna, gonna add another one to it. So we're still starting at the peak there of 2008. That was the peak of the last cycle. And we still bottomed out in 2010, still uh, stabilised in 2012 with the peak, the previous peak, remember I said, was 1990. 
bottomed out uh, 1992, stabilized by 1994. So if we take, there it is then the bottoming out, if we add this to the end of it, which is the same chart, all I'm going to do is take the next cycle. So if we add 18 years to the peak of the previous, previous cycle, to the previous cycle, we get 2008. So 1990 plus 18 years is 2008. So peak to peak, 18 years. If we add 18 years to this peak, where are we going to be? 2026, peak to peak. Interesting, isn't it? If we add 18 years to the bottom of the previous, previous cycle, being 1992 through 1994, what do we get? 2010, 2012. If we add 18 years to that, what do we get? 2028, 2030. Who knows where we're going to be by then? Now, this, this can be tracked back in Australia for about 100 years. I've tracked it back in Australia for about 100 years. All of the fundamentals that I shared with you this morning say this is what is going to happen. It will be the mid-20s by the time we get to an oversupply. Whether it's 2025, 2026, 2027, 2028, it's going to be in this mid-20s period when, when all of those fundamentals kick into gear and go through the economy and the, and the infrastructure and the demand and the supply curve, everything else that I was talking about all morning, it will be about the mid-20s when the economy goes through all of that processing. And that's when we're going to be in oversupply, which, of course, is a downward pressure on pricing. That's when we're going to get that drop. Now, I could have just looked at the chart and go, oh, it's going to be whenever. But without all of that knowledge behind me, without all of that understanding and fact, I, being the dubious person that I am, would not have accepted this. But with all of the research that I've done and everything that I've gone back through over the last hundred odd years, this is what's happened. Roughly every 18 years, this is the cycle that we go through. It's crazy, 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 freaky. Put that in another, another, another format for you. So we started the, this previous, previous cycle in 1994. We had the rise phase. We had the mid-cycle slowdown in 2001. That was the dot-com bubble. Then we had the boom phase. It peaked in 2008. That, you know, that peak to peak was 18 years. Then we had the crash and burn and the stabilization. Then we had the next rise phase. That, was, that led us down to 2012. Then we had the next rise phase, which brought us to uh, 2019. That's actually when we were supposed to have the mid-cycle slowdown. 2019 didn't happen to 2020. But as I say, this is a rough cycle, but it, it's still surprisingly accurate. Then we have the boom phase. This next boom phase is predicted to be bigger than what we've already seen since 2012. Now, you think about pricing in 2012 and you go, I could have said a word then, bloody hell. If this next one is, is greater than that, we are in for one hell of a ride and you can't afford to miss it. Peaking up here in 2026, um, bottoming out the correction phase through to 2028 through 2030. Let's add figures to this. Let's actually add some property prices to this, this, uh, this, this, this process here, okay? Because that, again, is your next 18 years. 
So let's do that. Let's take Sydney. Now, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Perth, I've highlighted here. In 1994, which was the start of the previous cycle, um, the median house price in Sydney was $194,000. Melbourne was 146, Brisbane was 130, and Perth was 134. Now, by the time we hit the dot-com bubble and we had the mid-cycle slowdown in the previous cycle, we the price in Sydney had already gone up to 364, 291, uh, 160, and 165. Now, let's take us through to the peak. So 2008 was the peak of the previous cycle. The median house price across those cities were this, 542, 441, 419, 443, okay? If you look at that percentage increase, 48.8% Sydney, 51.5 Melbourne, 61.9 uh, Brisbane, and 68.5 in Perth. Where were we by the end of that cycle? We'd actually, remember I said it, it dropped and then it recovered to even above where we were, slightly higher by the end of this complete cycle than where we were at the, uh, at the peak of the previous cycle, uh, peak of this cycle that we're in. Now, just remember these figures, because what I'm going to do now is I'm going to take these figures, because this is, this is history. This is, this is what happened, okay? That is what has happened. They were the pricing. That's what happened in the market over that 18-year that cycle. But let's take this starting point here in 2012 as our starting point for the cycle that we are now in, okay? We're going to go back to uh, over here. So there's 2012, same figures. I just moved them over there. Now, by the time we hit the uh, correction phase, the prices had already gone up. You can see what the median house price was there across those cities, considerably higher, right? Then if we have in the second boom phase of the, of the complete 18 cycle, if we have the same percentage increase as we saw in the previous cycle, which are these figures here, remember, 48 .5, 48.8, 51.5, 61.9, 68.5, what that means is that by the time we hit 2026, this is going to be the median house price in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Perth. Sydney's going to be 1.7 nearly. Whoa. 1.7. Where they're going to be in 2030, who knows? You can't afford to miss this growth. You can't afford to do it. And when we start looking at, at the actual pricing, we put a house to this. You could buy a median house right now for about 1.1 million in Sydney, thereabouts. But the thing is, you don't need a million bucks to buy that property because you can go and get an 80% loan, which is a four, which 913,000. Then you can go and borrow 20, sorry, your deposit is going to be your 20%, which is 228. You're going to need some stamp duty and other things. So let's call it $276,000 is what you're going to need to buy a median house in Sydney right here, right now. Okay. Sydney's the most expensive. I just picked that one as, as, as the one to look at. The others will be the same though. Then if by 2026, the median house price now is at nearly 1.7, that's a gain of $557,000. But you don't need a million bucks to get that gain. All you need is 276 to get the 557 because you're gearing. And if you know what you're doing, any of the mortgages are actually going to be paying for the, the, the rents are going to pay for the mortgages. So it's a neutral gear at worst positive geared at best, that on a cash on cash return is a 201% return. And there's the formula for it. 
201% return. That's doubling your money in that space of time. This kind of opportunity doesn't come around very often. If we look at the other cities, Melbourne is cash on cash return 200%, Brisbane is 277 and Perth could be 289%. And look, I'm not the only one saying this. I'm not the only one looking at all the fundamentals and everything else saying that this is how it's going to play out. Look at Westpac. This is the, the expected returns from 2022 to 2023 out of the major markets by Westpac. That's how they expect those markets to perform. ANZ, same thing. 2021 is expected to be significantly positive. That's this te tealy colour here. Look at NAB. NAB's a bit easier to see rather than the ANZ one. Look at the predictions that they're having for 2021 and 2022 from a growth perspective against the residential real estate market. This is price increase. You are not going to get this elsewhere, not with the leverage capacity. And if you're doing manufactured growth to elevate the value of your properties and the yield on your properties, as well as get this kind of natural growth, you get a double whammy. You cannot outsave this. You just can't do it. You cannot outsave these kind of returns. So if you've got kids still living at home that are adult children, kick them out. Get them out. Get them into the property market. Go joint venture with them. Do what you got to do to get them into the, the property market. Because they, they will just get further and further and further the, behind the eight ball the longer they wait. But get them educated so they don't go and do stupid things and buy stupid properties that are still going to be worth the same stupid price in another 10 years' time. Because that can happen too. Get yourself educated. Get the kids educated. As you can see, guys, there is a massive upswing happening. It's not going to happen. We are already in it right now. So we've just passed the mid-cycle slowdown and what's to come is going to be pretty jolly dramatic and you need to be part of it. It's all about footprint. The more footprint you can have, the better results you're going to get, which is what I'm going to be covering in the next, um, in the next session, the next uh, Great Real Estate Reset uh, session that I series that I'm going through right now. So uh, tune into that one there. It's coming up very soon. I'll catch you again soon now. Bye.